thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, this morning we're going to look at one of my favorite Bible characters in the Bible. And I was initially drawn to this person as a kid because I share their name. Uh, for those of you who have a name of someone in the Bible, I'm sure that you were interested in that person, want to know about that person and you know how that relates to you. My full name is Matthew Stephen McGoldrick. And so Matthew, obviously the gospel of Matthew, the author of that gospel, I wanted to know about him. But I also wanted to know about Stephen, who is the person that we're going to be focusing on this morning in uh, Acts chapter 6 and 7. And, you know, so as a kid, I, I was interested in that. It was I got older and I started studying these different individuals that I was named after, you know, especially Stephen. I was just uh, blown away by his life and the man of God that he was. And uh, I just saw, you know, so many great things about him. And so as we, as we look at his life this morning, I'm convinced that you will see, you know, this man, Stephen, is a great example to us and a great godly man uh, that we see here in scripture. And so last week at the beginning of chapter six, as we looked at that, we saw the first mention of Stephen in the Bible. uh, And we noted some important things about him. If you remember, there was a problem with some of the widows in the church being neglected. And so they bring this problem to the apostles and the apostles say, all right, you guys, you need to find seven men with three specific qualities, qualifications, and appoint them over this ministry to the widow. And those three specific qualifications Qualifications were men who were of good reputation, men who were full of the Holy Spirit, and men who were full of wisdom. And so the congregation of people, they find seven men who meet these three qualifications. And one of those seven men were Stephen. Uh, and so Stephen has this role of investing in and taking care of the widows. And he fits these great three qualifications. And so he's serving God in this capacity in the early church. And, and we're going to see this morning that God now uses Peter in even greater ways. He's been faithful in serving widows. And now God's going to do even more in and through his life. But, you know, as we've noticed so far in the book of Acts, as God does great things in and through people's lives, we see Satan coming alongside to try to destroy the work that God has done. And Satan's attacks have been getting more and more severe. If you remember last chapter, we just noted that the apostles not only were arrested, but they were beaten because they were preaching in Jesus' name. And and so Satan's trying to use these fear tactics and this pain and suffering to try to stop them from preaching the gospel. It doesn't work, but now he's going to come against Stephen, as we're going to see here in what we're going to look at this morning. And this is going to be the most severe attack that we've seen yet. So let's start by seeing how God was greatly using Stephen where we left off last week, Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8. And it says this, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Luke starts off telling us that Stephen was full of faith and full of power. Last week we noted that he was full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. As we look in chapter 7, we're going to see that Peter is also full of the Word of God, full of courage, and full of love. This Greek word translated full of means to be thoroughly permeated with something, to be filled up to overflowing full. 
So when you're full of something in this way, when it permeates your life, when you're filled to overflowing, people are going to see that coming out of you. It's going to be evident in your life. It's going to be quite clear that this is something that's in you. Now, you can be full of a lot of things. You can be full of godly things. You can be full of ungodly things. And we see here with Stephen that he is full of seven godly things. And I want you to take note of those things. First, he's full of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, faith, power, the word of God, courage, and love. What a great list of things to be full of. What a great list for someone to be able to look at your life and say, wow, they're full of these seven things. And I want you to ponder that for a second. I want you to think about if someone looks at your life today, what would they say you're full of? As they see your life, as they see your actions, as they see your words, what is it that you're full of. You know, growing up as a kid, when someone was lying, we'd say, you're full of it. Uh, basically, you're full of lies. You're, you're, you're saying lies to us. And so, you know, we can be full of positive good things. We could be full of negative things. And I want you to think about your own life right now is what is it that you're full of and what is it that people around you see? Would they see what they see in Stephen? Would they see these godly characteristics, these godly attributes coming out in your life through your behavior, through your words? You see, the reality is, you know, all of us as Christians have good things that we're filled with and we struggle with sinful things that come out of our lives. And, you know, our desire should be we want to grow to be more and more men and women of God where these godly characteristics are filling our lives and coming out of our lives. And what we see here with Stephen, these seven things is a wonderful, wonderful example for us, something that we should desire to have full in our life. And a question that we want to throw out there is, well, how can we get to that place? How can we become full of these seven things that Stephen was full of? Well, the way to be filled with some of them is just to ask God to give it to you. The simple ways. We have the Holy Spirit. We have wisdom. We have power. You know, when you accept Christ into your life, we're told once you accept him, once you ask God for him to come into your life, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. You ask and it is given to you. When you ask God for power to empower you, he also does that. James tells us this is also true with wisdom. In James 1, 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So with some of these things, we're filled with it just because we ask God for those things. With other things, we're filled because we spend intimate time with God. We invest in time with God. You know, if you want to be someone who's full of the Word of God, <clears throat> if you want the Word of God to permeate your life, if you want the Word of God to be overflowing out of your life, that doesn't just happen. It's something that transpires when you actually invest in God's Word, study God's Word, take regular time to allow God's Word into your life. Therefore, it will fill your life. You know, if you want to be full of faith, you know what? Studying the Word of God is also an essential thing to do. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. You know, there's an important question, uh, connection here because in the Word of God, you learn who God is. You learn what He's done. You learn His power. You learn His love. And if you're going to put faith in someone and grow in faith in someone, you need to understand who that person is. And as you understand who God is and how wonderful He is, it increases your faith in Him. It helps you to grow in Him. So once again, you need to spend time with Him. Spend time in His Word if you want to grow and be full of faith. 
You want to be full of courage. You want to be full of love. Those as well are a result of spending time with God. They're also a result of the Spirit of God who dwells in you. 2 Timothy 1.7 tells us, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The Holy Spirit is there for giving you that courage, for giving you that love when you need it. So when a believer is full of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, faith, the Word of God, power, courage, and love, man, God can do great things in and through your life. And that's exactly what happens with Stephen. We're told that in verse 7, Stephen does great wonders in signs, um, or eight, sorry, among the people. Stephen's the first person mentioned in Acts who does these great signs and wonders besides the apostles. So it's been the apostles who God's been using in these supernatural ways. And now all of a sudden we have Peter or Stephen doing these things. And, and I want you to note something about Stephen. He's gone from faithfully doing practical ministry, taking care of the practical needs of widows. And now God has given him another ministry of doing really supernatural signs and wonders and, and moving through Peter in a new significant, or sorry, I keep saying Peter, Stephen way. And I want you to note this important principle here for us to understand that, that Jesus reveals in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verse 21, it says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Jesus clearly tells something to us that's a great principle to understand. When you're faithful in the little things that God has given to you, then he will give you more. Then he will give you greater things. You see, Stephen was faithful. He was faithful in the ministry to serve the practical needs of the widows. And as he was faithful in that, then God chose to give him more. Then God chose to invest in him and give him these other ministries that he was doing with signs and wonders. And this is the way that God works. He waits for us to be faithful in what he's already given to us before he gives us new ministries, before he gives us more significant ministries. Because if we can't be faithful in what he's already given to us, then why would he give us more? You know, I oftentimes have gone back to Calvary Chapel's Bible College where I've graduated, and, and I like to talk with people who want to be in full-time ministry, who want to be pastors, who want to teach the Word of God and, and encourage them. And, and, you know, they'll come to me sometimes and they'll express that desire for that. And one of the questions I always pose to them, and I ask, what are you doing right now to prepare yourself for that? What church are you serving at? Where are you teaching? Who are you investing in? And some of them will respond to me, oh, oh, I'm not serving anywhere. I'm not teaching anybody. I'm not investing in anyone. When I graduate, God's going to make me a pastor of a church, and then I'll do all those things. And I take them to this passage and say, well, wait a second. If you're not faithful in the little things and all these opportunities you have now, why would God, just because you graduate, then throw you into this role when you haven't been faithful right now to teach people, to invest in people, to disciple people? And so there's this reality that we need to understand we need to be faithful with the people, with the circumstances, with the service opportunities that God places in our life now. And as we are faithful in those, he will continue to give us more. D.L. Moody, a great pastor and commentator, said this, There are many of us that are willing to do great for the Lord, but few of us who are willing to do little things. But unless you are willing to be faithful in the little things, you will never be given great things. So Stephen is doing great signs and wonders, and notice what happens in verses 9 and 10. Then there arose from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, 
Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And so Stephen is doing these great signs and wonders like the apostles were, and it gave opportunity, just like it did with the apostles, to talk with people. But now you have these religious leaders, they're coming and they're debating with Stephen. They're, they're having these debates, but notice what we're told. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen spoke. So here are these trained religious leaders, they're coming and they're debating things with Stephen, and The wisdom that Stephen has because of the power of the Holy Spirit given to him, they're not able to win these debates. They're kind of blown away by this reality. And this should be an encouragement to us as we share about Jesus with people. To trust that the Holy Spirit will give you wisdom. To trust that he will empower you to speak words of wisdom and that people can grasp the truths that you want to communicate to them. So these Jewish men, they couldn't win the debate against Stephen. And so notice what they do in verse 11. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and elders and the scribes, and they came and seized him and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say this, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. So the opponents of Stephen, you know, that they, they can't win the debate. So they figure, you know, if we can't beat him, we'll just lie about him and try to undermine the message that he's bringing out. And so they get people to lie. They get people to give false accusations against Stephen. And, and with those false accusations there, they now seize him. Uh, they arrest him and they bring him before the council. Now remember, this is the same council that Jesus was placed in front of that convicted him and sentenced him to crucifixion. It's the same council that the The apostles just were in front of and then were beaten uh, after the council sentenced them. And so this is the same council now that Stephen stands before. And I want you to note he is given two false accusations that are placed against him. The first false accusation was that they heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses, against God, against the temple, and against the law. This wasn't true, but this is what they claim because this is a severe thing uh, in their culture. The second false accusation was that Stephen said Jesus of Nazareth would destroy the temple and change their customs. These are also not true. But there are two things I want you to note about these false accusations. First of all, I want you to note that in the Jewish legal system, these accusations were sentenced by death. These were huge. So if you found guilty of blasphemy, you can be killed. Uh, And so they're throwing out the most significant charges against Stephen, wanting ultimately to shut him up by killing him. The second thing I want you to note is this is exactly what the religious leaders did before they crucified Jesus. They couldn't have, they didn't have anything against Jesus, so they had to get people to lie about Jesus, and they bring these false accusations against Jesus, and blasphemy and destroying the temple were two of the ones that they threw against Jesus. You know, you're in a good place when people are treating you like they treated Jesus, because it shows that you're living like Jesus, and that's something that we see and will continue to see in the life of Stephen. So Stephen is standing before this council who brought these false accusations against him, 
And notice what the council sees. And this is something that I think is so significant. I want you to try to put yourself in Stephen's position. You've just been arrested by these guys that you know want uh, it. They have it in for you. And notice what we're told that they see in verse 15. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. And so they're throwing these false accusations against Stephen. They had this huge council there. He's standing in front of them. And as they look at his face, it's like the face of an angel. Now, think about this for a moment. Put yourself in Stephen's situation. You've just been falsely accused of two crimes, and the punishment of those crimes is death. You're standing before a hostile group who doesn't like your message, who doesn't like you, and has it in for you. What would your face look like? When they saw your face, what would they see on your face? Would they see anger? Would they see fear? Would they see disgust? Would they see hostility, frustration? What would they see on your face? When they look at Stephen, they don't see any of those things. They see this face like an angel. Howard Marshall, a commentator and Bible professor, says this, This description of a person who is close to God and reflects some of his glory as a result of being in his presence, just like Moses' face shined after being in God's presence presence. So as the council looks at Stephen, they see something special about him. They see something in his face, and the reality is God is shining through Stephen. You know, when the world looks at us, we should want them to see that God is shining through us. Actually, that's something that should define us as followers of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and through 16. It says, you're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. As Christians, we're called to be light to this dark world. And that happens through our actions, through our words, through our uh, ability to impact this world as we live for Jesus and he shines through our life. And we're seeing this with Stephen. So Stephen is on trial before the council of religious leaders. He's been falsely accused with two charges that are punishable by death. And now, starting chapter 7, verse 1, we're told this. Then the high priest said, are these things so? So now he's standing before the high priest is the judge here in this council. He says to Stephen, are these things so? Are these accusations, these two things, accurate? Are you guilty of this? Here's your chance to defend yourself. Stephen. So Stephen now gets the opportunity to defend himself. He can defend himself against the accusation that he's blasphemed Moses, God, the law. He can defend himself against the accusation that he said that Jesus will destroy the temple and the Jewish customs. But instead of taking an opportunity to defend himself against these things, he takes the opportunity to reveal to the religious leaders their sin. In Stephen's response, he's really going to turn the tables on the religious leaders. Instead of defending false accusations that he is not guilty of, he's going to reveal true accusations that the religious leaders are guilty of. He's the one meant to be on trial, but he's turning the tables and really putting them on trial. 
If you notice through the Gospels, this is something that Jesus was great at doing. The religious leaders would come and they'd bring false accusations or they'd bring catch-22 questions towards Jesus. And he would always turn the table and at the end of it all, he would reveal the sin of these religious leaders. And that's ultimately something that Stephen is doing through his response. Stephen responds to the religious leaders by preaching a powerful sermon. This is actually the longest sermon that Luke records in the book of Acts. And in this sermon, Stephen is going to give a wonderful overview of Jewish history. He's speaking to these Jews. He wants them to understand some significant points within their history. And he's going to highlight some of the most important people within Jewish history. And as he shares that history, he's going to emphasize three main points. And as we look at this sermon, these are the three main points I want us to focus on because they're the three main points that Stephen brings out. The first main point is that throughout the Jewish history, they had a tendency to reject the deliverers and saviors God sent to them. The second main point is that throughout the Jews' history, God has done great work in places other than Israel. This is important. Throughout the Jews' history, God didn't just work in the promised land. He didn't just work in Israel. He worked in lots of other places through the Jews. And this is an important point because the Jews at this time, they tended to think God's blessing, God's favor were all connected with being in the promised land. If you're not in Israel, sorry, you don't have those things. And so, you know, throughout their history, Stephen's bringing up, well, actually, God's done a lot of blessing outside of the promised land. The third main point of Stephen's sermon is that God dwells everywhere, not just in the temple. God's presence was with these founding fathers of Judaism outside of the promised land, outside of Israel, outside of the temple. The Jews at this time believed that the only way you could really have a relationship with God was through the temple. You know, it's interesting because they rejected the one who's changed everything. They rejected Jesus, the Messiah. And we're told in scripture that when you accept Christ, you now are the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 3.16 says, Did you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? When someone accepts Jesus, the Spirit of God dwells in them. They're now the temple. We don't need a temple to relate to God or have this relationship with God. He now dwells in those who accept Him. So the three main points of Stephen's sermon reveal that the gospel is for everyone Jews and Gentiles, you can have a relationship with God, whether you live in Israel or whether you live somewhere else. And the way is possible because of accepting Jesus Christ. Now, as Stephen shares about the Jews' history, he's going to bring out five of the most prominent men in Jewish history. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, and Solomon. And with each person, he's going to be focusing on one of these three main points to bring this home to his listeners. Well, the first person that Stephen talks about is Abraham. He's going to the start of the Jewish nation, the person that God has chosen that's going to be the father of the Jews. Notice what he says, chapter 7, starting in verse 2. It's too far. There you go. And he said, brethren and fathers, listen, the glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. 
But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give him it for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. So Stephen starts his sermon, bringing his listeners back to Abraham. Abraham is the start of the Jewish nation. And notice he points out some facts that God appeared to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, way over here, and then he was with him in Haran, and then he was with him also in Canaan, or the promised land. So God appears to Abraham, guides Abraham, was with Abraham before he came into the promised land, blessed him before he was in the promised land. And this is the second main point of Stephen's sermon. Throughout the Jews' history, they God has done a great work in them in other places other than Israel. So God blesses Abraham in many ways, but the greatest blessing was that he had a son in his old age. He's 100, his wife's 90. This is a miraculous child that they have. And you know what? This blessing was before there was a temple. God had a close relationship with Abraham before there was a temple. And once again, another point that Stephen is going to continue to bring up in his sermon that, wait a second, didn't Abraham, wasn't he close to God outside of the promised land? Wasn't he close to God before there was a temple? And so God dwells everywhere, not just in the temple. Stephen finishes letting us know that Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons which ultimately are the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those 12 sons is Joseph. And that's the next person that he continues to refer to and speak about as he shares the history of Israel. Verse 9. And the patriarchs becoming envious sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt in all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham brought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. So Stephen reveals the patriarchs who were Joseph's 10 older brothers. He's still going to have Benjamin, his younger brother. But the 10 older, they were jealous of Joseph and they sell him into slavery to Egypt. And as Joseph is in Egypt, God blesses him. God delivers him from things and and makes him ultimately second in command to Pharaoh in Egypt. He's now governor over all of Egypt and all of Pharaoh's house. Now, the book of Genesis gives all the details of why his brothers are envious of him, what happens as he goes to Egypt, how God delivers him, how God raises him up. I don't have time to get into all the details, but if you do want to know the details, I encourage you to go read through Genesis. Uh, It's a great story. Um, But just like with Abraham, Stephen is emphasizing God's presence with Joseph the whole time. God wasn't just with Joseph when he was in the promised land. He was also with Joseph when he was taken out of the promised land to Egypt. Once again, another one of Stephen's main points. 
Now, there's something even more significant about Stephen mentioning Joseph because Joseph is a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. Joseph was rejected by his brothers, just like Jesus was rejected by most of the Jews. Joseph was used to deliver and save the nation of Israel, just like Jesus was used to deliver and save everyone from their sins. God made Joseph second in command in Egypt so he could save food during the seven years of plenty because there was coming seven years of famine in which they would need that food. And God did that so that Joseph not only could save the Egyptians, but also the Jews from starvation. So here's the first mention in Israel's history where they rejected the person that God sent to deliver and save them. Joseph was sent ultimately to be the deliverer. God knew a famine's coming. God knew all of them would die unless he sent Joseph ultimately with this wisdom to save all this food in the seven years of plenty so that when the seven years of famine, they had it. And so God sends Joseph as the deliverer, but Joseph was rejected by the Jews. And this is another point in Stephen's sermon. Throughout the Jews' history, they continue to reject those that God sends to deliver and save them. Well, Stephen finishes talking about Joseph by revealing that all the Jews now come to Egypt and they live there in Egypt with Joseph. The whole family is together there. And so Stephen's now shared about Abraham. He shared about Joseph and the natural next person as everybody's in Egypt. You probably think of the person that's going to come next, which is Moses. Let's see what he has to say about Moses. He has the most to say about Moses, but at this point in time, Moses was kind of the premier individual in you know Judaism because he was given the law and they held him up to such high esteem, but he has some very important things to remind them about Moses and their history with Moses. Notice what he says in verse 17 through 22. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, The people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dwelt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was sent out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and deed. So at the end of Joseph's life, all of the Jews come to Egypt. They're dwelling there. And then we're told something significant changes. A new Pharaoh, the old Pharaoh who was there, who made Joseph his right-hand man, who saw all the things that God did through Joseph's life, that guy dies. A new Pharaoh is risen up who does not know Joseph and does not know the things that Joseph did. And now he deals treacherously with the Jews. So treacherously that he commands that all the baby boys be killed. And during this time, Moses was born. God miraculously saves him. If you go through the story of Exodus, you can read all the details about how that transpires. But ultimately, he's raised up in Pharaoh's household. And we're told that he learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and deed. And for 40 years, he's in Pharaoh's household. But now, when he's 40 years old, we see what happens. Verse 23. Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. 
And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he did, but he who did this to his neighbor, sorry, but he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this same, Moses fled and became a dweller in Midian, where he had two sons. So Moses is 40 years old. He's been in the palace with Pharaoh, raised in all these things. He recognizes his heritage, that he's a Jew. He sees the Egyptians basically abusing his Jewish people. And there's an Egyptian beating a Jewish slave. And to stop this beating, he comes and he kills this Egyptian. Thinking, you know, I am going to deliver the nation of Israel. Well, notice what Stephen tells us. He supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. Well, the next day Moses comes and he intervenes. There's two Jewish guys fighting with one another. He says, hey, you guys are brethren. What are you doing? And they say, who made you a judge or ruler over us? And then the next statement they make is something that scares him immensely. Are you going to kill us like you did that Egyptian? What? People know about that? And so right when he finds out about that, he's fearful of what is Pharaoh going to do when he finds out that I killed an Egyptian. And so he flees Egypt and he dwells in Midian. And he's going to dwell in Midian for 40 years. An interesting thing about uh, Moses' life is you have three 40s. You have the first 40 years in Pharaoh, 40 years out in Midian, and then he's going to have 40 years as he delivers the nation of Israel in the wilderness. Uh, But so now... He leaves and he goes to Midian for 40 years. Let's see what Joseph reveals now. Verse 30. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals off your feet, for the place you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groanings and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge, is the one God sent to be ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out. And after had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. So Moses, he's dwelling in Midian. So you see there, he's a shepherd. He's been there for 40 years. And then he encounters God in a burning bush. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with what transpires there. And the Lord says, you know, the place you're standing is holy ground. Take off your sandals. And he has this great encounter with God. And God says, I'm sending you back to Egypt. And you're going to be the one that I use to deliver the nation of Israel. Now, notice what Stephen says in verse 35. This Moses who they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in a bush. So here is the second time Israel's history where they rejected the person that God sent to deliver them, that God sent to save them. They reject Moses. They reject he had any right to rule over them and to judge them. And then once again, this is one of Stephen's three main points. Throughout the Jews' history, they had a tendency to reject the deliverers and Savior that God sent to them. But 
Notice something else. God meets with Moses in Midian. He powerfully uses Moses in Egypt, and he's with Moses for 40 years in the wilderness. And as you can see from this map, none of those places are in the promised land. And so once again, Stephen reminding them, look how God worked in you, and not only in Moses, but in all of Israel, in places other than the promised land. Well, Stephen isn't done focusing on Moses because he's going to reveal that, you know what? After God used Moses immensely in the wilderness, they still reject him again. Verse 37. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness? O house of Israel, you also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Rempham, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. So Stephen says, hey, this Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Moses gave a prophecy. He says, you know what? There's going to be someone coming just like me, a prophet just like me. He's going to be raised up among you, the Jews. Listen to him. Moses is speaking of Jesus, the coming of Jesus. He's going to come. That's the one you need to listen to. But Just like Israel rejects Moses, they're also going to reject Jesus, who's the prophet that Moses spoke of. Now, remember, while Moses is there in the wilderness, he does something very significant. He goes up Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. And as he's up in the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, the nation of Israel turns away from God. Instead of, oh, Lord, look at what you just did in Egypt, and you delivered us, and you parted the Red Sea, and you brought us here, they come to Aaron. And they say, Aaron, make us an idol. And Aaron makes this golden calf and they start worshiping it. And I find significant, Moses comes down from the mountain and he's speaking to Aaron and probably thinking, what in the world is going on? What are you guys thinking? What are you guys doing? And Aaron in this classic response is just like, I don't know what happened. You know, they, we just put gold in this calf just came out miraculously. I, I don't know how it happened. And now we, you know, we just were worshiping it. But, you know, so... This is what transpires. They start worshiping another God. They reject, once again, Moses, the one that God sent to deliver them. The third time in Israel's history where they rejected the person that God sent to deliver and save them. So Stephen shares about Abraham, about Joseph, about Moses, and now he's going to share a tiny little bit about David and Solomon. Let's see what he has to say. Verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joseph into the land possessed by the Gentiles who God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of King David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. 
But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? My hands had not made all these things. Stephen reveals that in Israel's history, they had the tabernacle starting in the time of Moses. Uh, and they also had uh, King David who said, you know what, God, we have this tabernacle. It's a tent. We tear it up, put it back down. We move, we put it back up. You know, we want something permanent for you. I want to make you a dwelling place that's a home that's permanent for you. And God loved the heart of David to build the temple. But he said, you know what, David, you have shed too much blood. You're a man of war. So your son, Solomon, the next king, he's going to be the one that gets to build this temple. And so from Moses all the way to Solomon, you have the tabernacle. And then from Solomon all the way to Jesus, you have the temple. But notice what verse 48 says. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. And then Stephen quotes the Old Testament prophets to make his point. He says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Stephen just revealed to these religious leaders, you know, God doesn't just dwell in the temple. He dwells everywhere. I mean, he created everything. He dwells everywhere. The universe is his dwelling place. But the religious leaders, they had tried to confine God within the temple. God was too big to fit in the temple. There was nothing that could ultimately confine him. You know, many Christians make the same mistake with the church building. They think that God only dwells within the church building. The only place you can meet with God is when you come to a church building. And But they miss the reality that God dwells everywhere. You can meet with Him at any point, a time, any place, because God is everywhere, and He desires to have a relationship with you everywhere that you are. So as Stephen has shared an overview of the Jews' history, he brings up these three points over and over. First, Throughout the Jews' history, they have a tendency to reject the deliverers and saviors that God has sent. Second, throughout their history, God has done great work in places other than Israel. And third, God dwells everywhere, not just in the temple. Well, now Stephen is going to conclude his sermon, and he's going to apply these things to his listeners, the religious leaders. And right now, I'm sure that all ears are like, well, you know, it's just great. You're sharing our history. You're sharing the people that we hold in such great admiration, like Abraham and Moses and Joseph and David and Solomon. Great. But they don't know the point that's coming next. Notice what Stephen concludes with. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who were foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. You have received the law by direction of angels and have not kept it. Stephen preached this sermon to show how hard-hearted the nation of Israel has been throughout their history how they constantly reject the people that God sent to deliver them, to save them. And now he concludes by saying, you religious leaders are no different. You're just like your forefathers who did this 
as I just explained to all of you who have continued to reject the people that God sent, you are no different. But he uses pretty strong language. You guys are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so to you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And you go through the Old Testament and look at all the prophets that God sent. The nation of Israel persecuted them all. And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one or Jesus. And you guys betrayed and murdered the Messiah. You murdered Jesus. And you think you're so great because you have the law. But guess what? You don't keep the law. And so he brings all these accusations here at once to his listeners. The main point of Stephen's message is to reveal the religious leader's sin and to show them they're just like their forefathers. Nothing's changed. You guys are still sinning just like they did. And you need to repent. Your forefathers rejected and killed the people God sent, and so have you. Now, I want you to note the huge boldness and courage of this message, especially the conclusion. I mean, imagine once again, I I wanted you to put yourself in Stephen's position. He's standing before a council who has the ability to kill him. He's been given two false accusations that he could try to say, well, those aren't true, and try to defend himself so he could get off. Instead, he says, you know what? I am just going to share with you your history and show you how you are sinful men who need to repent and get right with God. And it's extremely bold what Stephen does. Well, Let's see how the religious leaders respond. They've not only heard the history, but now they hear the point that Stephen's making of, you guys are just like them. You're sinful. You reject those that God sends to you, and you don't even keep the law. And let's see how they respond to this revelation of their own sin. Verse 54 says this, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. The Holy Spirit uses this sermon to cut these men to the heart. There is a conviction, there's a revelation of their sin. But there's also a choice as to what you're going to do when the Spirit of God does that. Because we're told there's certain things the Spirit of God does. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So he's convicting these men of their sin. And now they have a choice as to what they're going to do. If you remember in Acts chapter 2, the exact same thing happens, but the result is different. Acts 2, 27. Now when they heard this, Peter has just preached the gospel, has just told them that they're sinners, that they're part of crucifying Jesus. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? So they have the same thing. The Spirit of God cuts them to the heart. They recognize their sin, but notice their response to their sin. What shall we do? We know there needs to be something we shall do. And Peter tells them, you need to repent. You need to repent of your sin and get right with God. Whenever the Spirit of God convicts us of sin, reveals sin in our life, that is the ultimate desired result that we would repent and get right with God. But there's a reality. We have a choice to make. When we're cut to the heart, when we're convicted of our sin, we can either repent of it and get right with God, or we can harden our heart like we see here with the religious leaders. They do not repent. They do not recognize or or willingly accept their sinful state and want to do something about it. Instead, we're told, that they gnash with their teeth at Stephen. I think it's interesting to notice the the total contracting contrast uh, between Stephen and them. Because notice, when Stephen's put on trial, his face is like the face of an angel. 
When they're now put on trial, in a sense, where he's revealing their sin, man, they got gnashing of teeth, these angry faces. They're wanting to destroy Stephen. And it once again just shows kind of what's inside of them. So as the religious leaders are gnashing at Stephen, notice what Stephen, we're told, what he sees, verse 55 and 56. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Before we get into what Stephen sees, we're reminded of something very important. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. All that's happening now, this wisdom, this power, this, this ability to stand courageously, the source of being able to preach this message is because he's full of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God dwelling in him, empowered him to be able to do this. And I want to encourage you, you have the same Holy Spirit that Stephen did. You have the same Holy Spirit the apostles did. We can do the things that they did. God can empower us to boldly stand before our foes and proclaim the wonderful truths of God and the fact that people need to accept him. But notice what Stephen sees. We're told that he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, it's interesting to note because throughout the Bible, we usually see a reference to Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. But now Stephen says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Most commentators believe that Jesus is literally standing for the first martyr because we're going to see soon Stephen's not going to make it much longer than this and receiving Stephen into heaven. And so when Stephen says that he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, The religious leaders, they get more angry, they get more crazy, and notice how they respond. Verse 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So when Stephen declares, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, Once again, saying, Jesus is God. They can't handle this, and they plug their ears. I'm not going to listen to it anymore. And they just come as a mob, and they rush at him, ran at him with one accord. It's interesting that the Greek phrase translated ran at him is the same Greek phrase used to describe that mad rush of pigs. Remember when Jesus cast the demon and put him into the pigs, and they had this mad rush, and they run off the cliff? It's the same Greek term that's used here. And so there's this mad rush, this mob rushing to Stephen, plugging their ears. We're not going to listen to anything else you say. And notice how extreme this is. Notice what their rage brings them to do. They take him out of the city, and they stone him to death. But notice something very important that we're told in verse 58. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is Saul, who's later going to become the Apostle Paul. And the reality that they're laying garments at his feet show that he's really the one presiding over this. He's the one who's like, hey, all right, we're all going to go kill Stephen right now. So Saul's the man in charge here, and he's the one they're executing Stephen, and when we get into next chapter, we're going to see he does a lot worse. So, but notice the response. Stephen is now getting stoned to death. This isn't a quick process. You're hit with a lot of stones and obviously a miserable, horrible way to die. But notice what he does in verses 59 and 60. 
And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But notice this in verse 60. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Once again, I want you to put yourself in Stephen's situation. You're now placed in this position where these angry mob has grabbed you. They pull you out of the city. They're grabbing stones and they're throwing them at you to kill you. How would you respond to this group of people? What would be your thoughts to this group of people? What would you say to a group of people doing that to you? Well, notice what Stephen says. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Stephen displays the same forgiving and loving attitude and heart that Jesus had. Remember when Jesus is on the cross? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Stephen, as he's there being stoned to death, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. The love and forgiveness that Stephen shows to his enemies is an amazing example to us. And it's something that Jesus commands of every follower of him. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 44, back up please. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Notice Stephen does all of these things. He loves his enemies, he did good to those who hated him, and he prayed for those who spitefully used him. You know, something I think is very significant, not only is is Stephen a great example to us, but I believe one of the biggest things that God used to prepare Saul to get saved was this right here. Imagine this, you're the man, you're pulling, you're, you're over this, over the execution of someone, and you're throwing stones, and I'm sure you've been over the execution of others, and you see how most people respond, and this man says, Lord, forgive them. I'm sure that that impacted Saul in amazing ways and prepared his heart for what was ultimately going to be his salvation experience. Warren Wiersbe, a great pastor and commentator, said, when we get to heaven, make sure to look up Stephen and thank him for every blessing brought through the ministry of Saul of Tarsus. God heard Stephen's prayer, and the Apostle Paul is the evidence of it. You know, we have no idea how greatly God can use us, especially when we shine for him during times of persecution, when people come against us and we're living for him and people recognize Jesus shining through us, through our actions and through our words. We don't know the kind of impact we'll make. We don't know that maybe the person that sees our life might be the next Paul who goes out and God does great things because they see Jesus in us. And it makes such an impact on them and helps prepare them to receive the wonderful good news of Christ. Luke finishes in verse 60 by saying, when Stephen said this, he fell asleep or died. But I love this. Throughout the Bible, when it speaks of believers in Jesus, instead of they died and there's this finality, no, they just fell asleep because the reality is now you're going to wake up in the presence of God. Now you're going to be in heaven for all eternity. You know, we don't need to fear death. When you have accepted Jesus Christ, there's no fear of death because this world is as bad as it will ever get for us. When we get to heaven, there's no more sin, there's no more sadness, there's no more suffering. So we should look forward to, hey, when it's all done here on this earth, things are going to get so much better for us. There's no need to fear death. God did a great work through Stephen. And Satan tried to destroy that work and responded as severe as you can. He gets these religious leaders to kill Stephen. 
But just like with the death of Jesus and the religious leaders thought, finally, we're done with this man. Finally, all this is done. We're not going to have to deal with it anymore. No, no, no. The death of Jesus sparked a huge move of God. And the death of Jesus is now going to take the gospel out of Jerusalem, out of Israel, and it's going to start spreading where God had always intended it to spread throughout the rest of the Gentile world. Stephen was a great man of God and a great example to us. He's full of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, faith, power, the Word of God, courage, and love. He was willing to stand for Christ, stand for the truth of God, even in the midst of the most immense persecution of all, taking someone's life. And the question I want us to end with is, are we willing to do the same? You know, this world is in such desperate need of followers of Jesus who are full of godly things and are willing to stand for him no matter what the cost, no matter what the world brings against us, no matter what they're going to do to us because we stand for who Jesus is. And we're seeing in our culture more and more of the persecution and more and more of the laws that are saying, you cannot believe these things, you cannot stand for these things, but where are we going to be? Are we going to just cow to that and say, well, if the world doesn't like it, well, then we won't say it. Or are we going to boldly stand for these truths? Are we going to boldly live for Christ? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to see a man like Stephen. A man who willingly gave his life for you. A man who boldly stood for you. A man who proclaimed to a hostile crowd, a message that they needed to hear. And Lord, as we look at his life, I just pray that you would help us to be more like him. To be men and women, Lord, who are filled with these wonderful godly attributes and characteristics, Lord. And as we look at our life and we see maybe some of the other things that we're full of, that we shouldn't be full of, Lord, that you would help us to change So that when people look at our lives, when they look at our speech, when they look at our actions, they would see Jesus, not us. They would see you shining through us. They would recognize this is what Christianity is all about. This is what following Jesus is all about. And they would see boldness. They see a willingness to stand in the midst of a culture who's rejecting you and say, we will not reject you. We will stand for you. We will live for you. Regardless of what comes our way, regardless of what people are going to say or do, let us be bold like Peter and ultimately willing to lay down our lives if that is necessary. If you're here this morning, you've never asked God to forgive you of your sins. As I mentioned earlier, you have that opportunity. When the Spirit of God convicts you of your sin, you can either reject it, be hardened to it, or you can, as those in Chapter 2 said, what shall we do? And they repented of their sin. They got right with God. If you've never accepted that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin, if you've never accepted that he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death, I want to give you that opportunity to do that this morning. So if you're here this morning and you've never done that and you want to do that, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand as everyone's eyes are closed, their heads are bowed. I just want to pray for you. If you've never done that, I want to give you that opportunity today. Anyone want to do that, please raise your hand. God bless you. Anyone else? If you've never accepted Jesus, the Bible says today is the day for salvation. Don't let it pass by. You don't know how much time you have left. I just want you to repeat a prayer just with me. 
in the quietness of your heart. God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. And I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. That you would come into my life and that you would take over my life. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, we are grateful for another person coming to know you. We know that the Bible tells us that the angels rejoice in heaven over every person who accepts you, and we rejoice, Lord, for that. And we thank you, Lord, for the work that you do in hearts and lives. We thank you for the fact that you saved us. Lord, help us to respond to what you've done for us. And like Stephen, Lord, to be bold for you, to live for you, to show that we love you by not denying you, but by living lives that glorify you. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. And Lord, we just want to finish up today with one more opportunity just to worship you with song. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand one last time? We'll finish in a song of worship and just remember how great God is to us.